So every once in a while, um, right after Sunday school, I have a few minutes and I like to come up on the stage and just twist those things on the guitars. Is that causing a problem? Is that an, is that an issue? I thought they were just for show. Oh. Okay. It's always funny when, um, you know, things are going so... You guys practice before service and you... Yeah, it just, what, we got these little, little things, we call them demons, or they like to come in and get into, uh, into our technology and all kinds of stuff, so, thank you guys, you guys, <laughs> that was amazing, Steve, just jump right in, I'm sure you weren't ready to lead that, <laughs> Kurt's over here tuning his guitar, which, how does that even work when the whole thing's going on? It doesn't work very good, but you did it. Good job. All right. All right I'll stop messing around with the uh, guitars in between services. So we're um, finishing up our uh, life of Christ here. And I know last week um, the resurrection is like the, you know, the glorious conclusion of, of the ministry of Christ. But the thing is that you have this last... Um, validation, confirmation of, of Jesus' life, his ministry, his resurrection, who he is, that happens, you know, after he's raised. For 40 days, um, he is revealing himself to his disciples. He's intermittently, you know, popping up in uh, people's lives and confirming that he's alive. And um, one of the things that we needed to kind of dive into this morning is what is really happening um, in that, that time period, that, that, uh, that 40 day period that Jesus is revealing that he is alive now. And uh, one of the things that I kind of went back through and, and had to try to understand was what is the, the significance of 40 days? Is there a significance to 40 days? Because that's a pretty particular time period um, that Jesus is going to be here, and then 10 days later after he ascends, then we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's the day of Pentecost, and the church begins really in, in its own at that point, but for some reason there's this 40-day significance, and, and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that whenever God is about to do something new and kind of shift gears, then you have a 40-day uh, kind of a preparation that's going on. And so we go back through, and I just want to point these out because I think they are um, significant in understanding the 40-day period of, of Jesus' uh, uh, resurrection appearances, that in Moses' life, when he was just about to give the, the Israelites the word of God, okay, this is a, a significant shift from a people who are... Um, really identified by their faith, but not by anything really written. It's more of just a, a sense of, of we know who God is because we have this history. Moses goes to Mount Sinai, and on the mountain, he spends 40 days with God, fasting, praying, and basically talking to God face-to-face, -face, receiving the Ten Commandments and the law. And when he comes down, then something shifts in the life of Israel from a people that are kind of surrounded by or, or have this identity of faith to a people who have faith and now a written code, a law, the Ten Commandments, and then the rest of the law. And that's going to 
uh, basically identify the Israelites for the, the rest of, of their history, that they are now people of the book. We are called, as Christians, people of the book. Okay? We have a written word of God that, that we rely on as God's truth. And that was a significant shift that God made at that moment, uh, 40 days that Moses spent on Sinai with God. Then you have, just a little bit later, uh, Moses sends the 12 spies into the, the promised land of the Canaan um, to spy it out for 40 days. Now, how many of you know that there was a 40-year period that the Israelites wandered in uh, the wilderness before they entered the promised land? You all know that? Okay, that's not new news. Now, did you know that the reason why it's a 40-year period is because it's one year for every day that the spies spent in the land of Canaan. Okay, that, that's the reason that the word tells us that it was a 40-year period. They are being judged for this, this reality. The spies went in, they spied out the land. God is about to shift and change uh, what he's doing. He has promised them a land, but they've never had their own land. They've always been foreigners in another land. And so now he's about ready to give them the promised land, to give them their inheritance, and as he's preparing them for that, he sends the spies in for 40 days. They don't believe that they can do it. They don't trust God. And so what they do is they reject the inheritance. So they spend 40 years wandering in the desert while that whole generation dies off. But there's a 40-day period of preparation for this shift, this transition. Um, Elijah spends 40 days fasting and um, going uh, traveling to, again, Mount Sinai. He's just run from Jezebel and Ahab because he's had this huge mountaintop moment. Okay, it's kind of why we call it a mountaintop moment is because Elijah on Mount Carmel had just had a showdown with the pagan priests of Baal and had one. God poured out fire on his uh, sacrifice miraculously, right? And now he says, choose, Okay. Are you going to serve God or not? And, and they say, yeah, God is our God. So they kill all the prophets of Baal, and then rain comes. They haven't, it hasn't rained for three and a half years, and so now rain comes. But Jezebel says, I'm going to take off your head, basically. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And so he gets depressed. He runs away for 40 days, doesn't eat, doesn't drink, doesn't... Okay, and he's headed towards, again, Mount Sinai in, in uh, the Bible, it says Mount Horeb, and we believe Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain. But he spends that time with the Lord, and then he gets a word from the Lord at Mount Sinai. And here's what happens. There's a transition here, which is that uh, God is transitioning from uh, people that are basically covered by blessing and favor to a people that he's now going to challenge with the prophetic word of his prophets. The prophets are going to, to treat Israel like adults, basically. Okay? So you have the birth of Israel, then you have the infancy of Israel, then you have this time when they transition to adolescence and now into adulthood. And as adults, God transitions. He changes how he's dealing with them. And that ministry of, of treating Israel like an adult is the ministry of the prophets. And they begin to chastise and rebuke and challenge them to be faithful to the law, to the, to the word of God, which they fail to do. And then they end up 
uh, going into exile. But there was a 40-day period of preparation as God begins to transition. Then Jesus, he's here, he's an adult, he's uh, getting ready for his ministry, and what does he do? He goes into the Judean wilderness for 40 days, fasts, he's tempted by Satan for 40 days, and then he comes out of that and he begins his earthly ministry. There's this transition. God is transitioning from the Old Testament law to the New Testament uh, grace, the ministry of his Messiah. It begins in that period. Now, Jesus dies, he is buried, he's raised, and for 40 days, he's going to appear to his disciples. And I think that there's a, an importance, a significance to the fact that it's a 40-day period because God is now transitioning again the ministry. Now, a transition in how God is going to, to work or the things that God's going to do differently is this shift of the ministry of Jesus, okay, at this point, uh, from his earthly ministry healing and teaching to now transferring that to the disciples and to the church. And here we are 2,000 years later, that transition is still in place. We are the outcome of this particular ministry, this 40-day appearance of Jesus. He is getting the church ready, you and me, ready to take on our responsibility to communicate and live the gospel that he has just died for and been raised uh, for. Amen? That, that's why it's significant to us, because this is the evidence, this is the, this is the call to action for the church today. This is, this is what he is calling us to be about and to be for uh, the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to look at how this works, what it's really about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the, the okay, resurrection chapter of the Bible. This is the theology of it. This is the explanation of it. This is the um, understanding of why it's important, how it works, what's going to happen. Um, and so we're going to look at that as kind of our jumping off point, but then we're going to go back to the Gospels and see how Jesus appeared to his disciples and what we can learn from that. So let's, it sounds complicated. It's not that complicated. Okay, I'll, I'll, it won't be. Let's stand and, and read God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read this, just the first eight verses. <clears throat> it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Father, we thank you that we also have our own experience with the uh, resurrected Christ. That resurrection is uh, living within us now who believe. That uh, we don't just have a belief in Jesus, we, we know you. We um, can testify 
that uh, there's an experience, a personal relationship that has begun and grown and continues to mature. And Lord, we pray that that experience and that knowledge, that understanding, that faith, that power uh, would uh, have a, an opportunity uh, to multiply. Lord, as we uh, live it out, as we share it, as we communicate it, as we uh, give evidence of it, Lord, in our own lives, Lord, that other people around us, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, and, and wherever we happen to be, uh, would see the reality of, of the living Christ in, in our own lives, that we would be somehow <laughs> uh, so absolutely... Uh, transformed by Jesus that uh, we couldn't help but testify to it, the reality of grace through faith in Jesus. And Lord, somehow, by your Holy Spirit, would you take that witness, take the truth of your word, would you combine that uh, in other people's lives to create an, a new um, and eternal life in their heart? And we can't do that. All we can do is point to you. But I pray as we do that you would take that and do a great work. And we'll give you all the praise, God. We thank you for it. Amen. All right, so obviously in 1 Corinthians, I got to just, I don't know if this is obvious or not. It's obvious to me. I need to give you just a little bit of background. Um, and I say that um, hesitantly, a little bit of background. But what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul, talking to uh, this Gentile church in Corinth, in Greece, he has to deal with a, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of problems, a lot of sin, a lot of questions. Uh, and so for half of 1 Corinthians, he's basically addressing all of their issues. They're getting a lot of stuff wrong. And then he's answering a lot of questions that they have that, that seem to be obvious to him, but not so obvious to them. And here's one of the, the things that he's dealing with is the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason why is because as um, Gentiles, they did not understand. Okay, these are Greek people. They did not understand the value of a bodily resurrection of a of a of the believer, you and me, why, why would we need to be resurrected? That doesn't necessarily to them make sense. It doesn't seem to be important. And, and I would say that probably in the church today, um, that same kind of question is in the back of, of a lot of believers' minds. Uh, we don't understand. If I get to go to heaven after I die, uh, spiritually speaking, and my spirit is in heaven with God, experiencing all the glory and wonder and joy of heaven, why do I need to be physically or bodily resurrected? And that question kind of keeps coming up and, and keeps being an issue for a lot of folks. Now, what happened is that Paul, as a, a Jewish person, knew the Old Testament, knew that this was absolutely taught and prophesied that this is the way that it was going to be, that God was going to raise his people, the saints, to eternal life bodily, that they would experience this someday in the future, that when it all was concluded that God was going to raise both the righteous and the wicked to eternal life. Now, the wicked are going to go to eternal judgment, but those who are saints, those who believe, are going to go to eternal life, and that, that was a promise, okay? So to, to Paul, it's not 
simply just the fact that, well, the Bible says that I believe it and this is what you need to believe. It's also in terms of the understanding of what a human being is. And he goes back to the issue of creation, which is that God made you and me in the beginning perfect um, as a physical and spiritual being. This is how he made us. This is how he wants us. This is who we are. This is, in his mind, what it means to be a human being. And so that's not going to change. We have a, a short amount of time that when we die that our spirit is um, disembodied, okay, and we spend that time in heaven, but we're, we will be rejoined with a perfect, glorious, and recreated body someday, okay? And, and he's, Paul says, this is what the Bible tells us that this is who you are. And so what was happening was that they were um, influenced by Greek philosophy. And some of you know Greek philosophy. Um, Plato taught that spirit is good and, and physical or flesh is bad. So in their minds, if you're spiritual, you're good. So if you're disembodied and you go to heaven, that's good. Your flesh is bad. You don't want that coming back together at any point. And Paul's basically just undermining that whole idea. Now, what happens is that as he begins to explain some of these things, um, what he understands is that it's not necessarily that they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's not that they don't believe it or don't think that that's true or happened. It's that they don't think that they're going to be raised or that they need to be raised. And so what happens is that he says, if you believe that there is no resurrection, okay, that's just a blanket statement, then not only uh, are you not going to be raised, but, but that Jesus wasn't raised, and then there, you have no hope. How many of you know that our hope of salvation, the gospel, rests on the reality of, of a living Lord? That Jesus is alive, okay, this isn't just a theory, this is not just a theology, that Jesus is alive and that he is uh, permanently, eternally, gloriously living and reigning at the right hand of God, and that that is our hope, that, that he will return, and then we will live forever with him. That's the gospel. That's at least the conclusion of the gospel. And so Paul says you, you have to understand that what is coming into play here is not just a theory about what's going to happen in eternity. It's really what's happening is that your faith is being undermined, that you have an issue of, of where your faith comes into play. And so he's going to prove, okay, relentlessly throughout uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is not only true, but it's necessary. Now, here's the, the thing that he does, and then we're going to jump back to the Gospels. He basically goes through systematically or chronologically the appearance of Jesus to his disciples and to all the people who had faith, that they become the testimony of the gospel, ending with Paul, who is, he says, abnormally born. Um, and so let's go back to that. Let's understand that a little bit. He goes and, and uh, he begins with uh, the first day. Now, he skips over Mary Magdalene, and I think that the reason why Paul doesn't necessarily bring her up is simply that she's not prominent in the church at that moment, because he also does something else. He says that he appeared uh, to the 12. Um, and, and so when he says that he appeared to the 12, 
um, what he's basically saying is that at Paul's place in history at this moment, that the 12 apostles are a real thing. Even though Judas has gone to where he's, he was going to go, Judas killed himself, that there weren't a, a 12, there were only 11 at that moment in the resurrection moment of Jesus on that morning, Sunday morning. In Paul's day, Mattathias, you all know who Mattathias is? The 12th apostle who took the place of Judas. Mattathias was, um, was confirmed as one of the 12 apostles. He had been there during Jesus' ministry. He had seen Jesus in his resurrection. And then later on, he was established as being one of the 12 apostles. So from that point on, from Mattathias' point of, of confirmation forward, they always just refer to the 12, and they understand that that includes Mattathias as one of the 12. Okay, they don't, we get all tied up in the distinction of the 11 because Judas committed suicide and then he's no longer an apostle. They didn't do that. They said the 12, they meant Mattathias was one of the 12. Okay, clear? More than you wanted to know? All right, Mary Magdalene on the morning that Jesus was raised, um, here's what we think happened. Okay, just trying to put all the gospels together and understand one thing to the next. What seemed to have happened is Mary Magdalene and some other women came to the tomb early that morning, and they saw the angel. The angel told them, go tell the disciples. And what happened from that moment was probably, and this is a little bit of, of interpretation here, but Mary Magdalene went to tell Peter and John. The other women went and told the other disciples who seemed to be somewhere else. Okay? All the disciples were not necessarily together in, in that moment. So Mary Magdalene goes and tells Peter and John. Peter and John run to the tomb, and uh, they go in. They see that the, the grave clothes are still there, but Jesus has disappeared out of them, miraculously raised. He just he came out of them um, and left them, and then he folded his, the cloth over his face by itself. John exits the tomb believing. He's the only person in all of the accounts that we can see that seems to believe without seeing, okay? Everyone else has to see Jesus raised before they will put their trust in the reality that he is really alive. So what happens, though, is that Peter and John leave the tomb. John believes. Peter's not sure. He's kind of wondering. They apparently leave. Mary Magdalene had followed them back to the tomb. After she told them about this, she went back to the tomb, either closely behind them or with them, and then she sticks around, and she stays there while they leave. They, they have seen what they need to see, and they're gone. And while she's there weeping and mourning, she doesn't believe necessarily. She's heard from the angels. She's seen the empty tomb, and she still doesn't quite believe. She thinks that maybe somebody took his body away. And so what happens is, as she's there at the, the, in the garden at the tomb, um, Jesus appears to her. And she turns and sees this guy she thinks is the gardener, and um, she says, if, if you've taken his body away, you see where she doesn't believe yet? <laughs> if you've taken his body, just tell me, I'll go get it. I mean, I, I don't know if she can lift his body, but she's, she'll figure out a way. She doesn't trust that even with everything she's already seen that this is really true until he says, Mary. And something about his voice, her name coming from his mouth, and she understood. And what happens then is that she, um, she calls him Rabboni, which means rabbi teacher. 
And uh, he says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, there's a lot of information and teaching that could happen at this point about where Jesus went when he died because apparently he did not go to the Father when he died in those three days when he was in the tomb. Um, the, the Apostles' Creed and what Peter seems to indicate is that Jesus went and descended into hell. Okay, now some people don't believe that. That's fine. Uh, we're not going to make a big deal about it one way or the other. I do believe that's what happened, um, that he did not go to the Father in those three days. But regardless, what he is pointing to is not necessarily where he has been, but where he's going. He is going to the Father. He's going to ascend. He's not going to stay with them every day permanently. Okay? And this is why the 40-day period is important, because he's going to appear to them intermittently, and then he's going to be gone. He's preparing them for the reality that soon he will not be with them anymore. So he says, don't hold on to me. And I don't think he necessarily means don't touch me. I think he's just saying, don't get used to me being around. I'm not sticking around. So what happens then is that Mary goes and she tells the disciples that she has seen Jesus. Do you know what happens next? What the disciples do, what their response is? I think they're jumping up and down for joy like, you've seen Jesus, hooray! Anybody remember what happens? It says they did not believe her. They didn't believe her. They've seen the empty tomb They've heard witnesses about people seeing angels. She has seen Jesus, and they still don't believe. The next thing that happens is that uh, that same day, that afternoon, some of the disciples, this is in Luke, um, begin to leave Jerusalem. Okay? They've heard from Mary. They've heard the other women say they've seen angels. They've, they've seen the empty tomb if they want to. And they just they say, you know what? It's not worth even sticking around. I mean, can you imagine? I just, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting into the mind of these guys. It's Cleopas is, is one of them, and then the other one's unnamed. And so the two are walking to Emmaus. Emmaus is five, seven miles uh, west of Jerusalem, and they're just hitting the road. You're like, well, nothing more to see here, guys. I mean, <laughs> after everything that's gone on and everything that you've seen, you're just not going to stick around for a couple of days and just see how it plays out? Like, anybody think that's kind of weird? Just me? Okay. So they're hitting the road while they're leaving. And this is why I think Jesus actually um, appears to them because it's like, guys, don't leave. <laughs> There's more to come. But he, he approaches them on the road. They don't recognize him. And he's talking to them about the scripture and why the Christ had to die. And, all. and finally, when they get to Emmaus and he, Jesus breaks the bread. And I think, I think he, it's reminding them of the Last Supper. And something happens, and their scales fall from their eyes or whatever, but they see and understand it's Jesus, and then poof, he's gone. So they run back to Jerusalem, and they, um, and now it's like dark, but you're taking your life in your hands at that point. You're traveling on the road when it's dark, and that day and age was not a safe or smart thing to do. But you've just seen the risen Lord, so I guess you're just like, I, I don't care anymore. So they go back. And they say in uh, Luke 24, 34, it says, The Lord has risen, and um, the, this is what they, they're telling the disciples. They've seen him. The other disciples say, yeah, he's risen, and Peter has seen him. So we have no account, no description of what happened between Jesus personally and Peter in that moment, in that day. Um, but 
It's recorded here. Paul confirms that the two going to Emmaus, they record that they've seen him, but sometime in between, Jesus appeared to Peter also. Then, here's what it says in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So as the two from Emmaus are talking about having seen Jesus, Jesus just shows up. This is where we get this idea, okay? Jesus is just materializing in rooms when the doors are closed and locked and everything else. He's just, poof, he's here, he's gone. So he's physical. He says, give me something to eat. He says, you can touch me and all these things, but but somehow his, his nature, his, his uh, reality, his physicality is just a little bit different. Obviously, there's something going on here. They don't recognize him when they see him. They don't, there's just something different about him. But he's here, and he's alive, and we know it's him, and he's confirming it over and over and over. Now, what happens is in John, we have another account of what happened those days. Okay, So that day... When Jesus appeared and the guys from Emmaus are there and they're confirming this. So we got like, you know, disciples, apostles. We got maybe a couple dozen people gathered around seeing Jesus. But one guy's not there. You know who that was? Thomas. And so what do we call Thomas? Doubting. Everybody knows. Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. Everybody doubted. Not just Thomas. He wasn't the only one that doubted but here, Thomas does go a little above and beyond um, doubting. He says, and this is John 20 and verse uh, 25, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand or my fist in his side. I mean, he's kind of getting a little gruesome here, but he says, and then this is what he says, I will never believe. Unless I not just see him, but touch him, I will never believe. So that's kind of why we call him Doubting Thomas. It's just a little bit beyond just saying, well, I'm not so sure, guys. So what happens is a week later, okay, it says eight days later, um, they're all gathered around together. Thomas is with them again this time. Jesus appears. So for a week, nothing no, we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't heard from him. We, we don't know where he's at. We don't know what he's doing. He's not around. But a week later, here he is again. And he says to Thomas, hey, buddy, <laughs> go ahead. You wanted to put your finger in my, my nail-pierced hand. Here you go. And uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Verse 28. Now, it's not the first time Jesus has been worshipped. It's not the first time he's been called God, but it was such a moment for Thomas to go from just beyond Messiah to you are God. And he knew it and understood it in that moment. Now, here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You, you believe because you've seen it, you've touched, you, you said you would never believe it unless you put your hand to my side. So there are people, generations and generations down the road and across the world that are going to believe without seeing, without touching, without having the physical manifested resurrected Christ before them saying, yes, I'm real. Blessed are those people. That, 
You know who that includes? You believe without seeing, then you are blessed in that. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens, though, is that uh, we have more and more accounts of people seeing Jesus and yet maybe having some doubts, some issues. So what happens next is that Jesus leaves Jerusalem area, goes to Galilee. He told his disciples, go meet me in Galilee to the mountain that we've agreed upon ahead of time. And uh, we don't know exactly what mountain that is. Maybe it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it's Mount of Beatitudes. Maybe it's the, you know, where he fed the 5,000. We don't know for sure, but they knew. And so they go to that mountain and they see Jesus. And so what Paul says about 500 uh, seeing him at one time is probably Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus is with his disciples in Galilee. Now, before that, he had uh, appeared to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and that's when he reinstated Peter. But while he's up there in Galilee, he's going to appear to over 500 people at one time, and he's going to give them the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world preaching the gospel, right? But here's what it says. There are 500 people plus physically seeing Jesus. He's teaching them. And it says in verse 17, 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I don't know, do you scratch your head over that a little bit? We're seeing Jesus. He's right there in front of us. We're talking to him. We're asking him questions. He's answering questions. Why would some of them doubt? What is it that they would be doubting at that moment? And I have just a, a theory about this, okay? And it, it, maybe it's totally wrong, but I think what was happening was that out of those 500 plus people, they weren't all there in Jerusalem when he was crucified. Okay? So you just think about that for a second. So in their experience, they've seen Jesus do miracles and ministry and all the rest of it in Galilee. That's where he spent most of his time. He lived in Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. That's where he spent most of the majority of his ministry. He goes to Jerusalem for festivals or for brief periods, and he comes back to Galilee. So what has happened is that he has left Galilee. A lot of those people stayed in Galilee because you don't send everybody in the world to Jerusalem. I mean, a lot of people go, but generally speaking, you send uh, some people who represent your community. You don't send everybody. So it's likely a lot of those people stayed in Galilee. You following me? And he left. He's gone for a few weeks, and he comes back, and they say, well, I wasn't there for the crucifixion. I didn't see that happen. All I saw was, here's Jesus, he's alive, he's gone for a few weeks, and then here's Jesus, and he's alive. So if I don't necessarily 100% believe in the crucifixion, then I can't 100% believe in the resurrection. So they don't necessarily doubt the resurrection by itself. They just maybe aren't so sure about the whole thing. So they doubt and here's the, the amazing thing, is that as they are doubting, um, he is going to confirm and, and help them to understand over and over and over that it is necessary to apply faith. Even the people that see, even the people that are there who touch him still have to apply faith, right? It's not just seeing is believing. Seeing is only part of it. Believing is only part of it. There's got to be something that happens in your heart that says, I trust Jesus. 
I trust the witness of those around him that they are reliable people. Now, this is the whole conclusion here, okay? Paul himself has a similar experience. He was there for most of the stuff that happened to Jesus. He was there afterwards. He was giving his consent to kill the apostles, the, the disciples, because they were preaching Jesus. Paul knew the Old Testament upside down, backwards, and every, every other way that you can think of. He, he knew all the prophecies. He knew all the law. He knew all about Jesus, and yet he did not believe, would not believe in Jesus until when? Right? Here's the thing. He knew all the stuff about him ahead of time, but it wasn't until he had that moment on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself appeared to him that he then turned and believed. Then something changed. Then he received salvation through Jesus. Then he was transformed. Now, you and I have to take all of this and try to figure out what, what's the point of this? What's, what is it that Jesus is trying to communicate in all his appearances and what he's doing and what he's saying through his word? You and I, like Paul, we have the word of God. And I believe this is... This is what God has been doing for thousands of years. He has been giving us the confirmation of his truth in written form to every person that would read it, apply it, understand it, um, love it, study it, that every single person in the world who would has access to God's word. Okay? His word does not change. This is his message. And the message was always pointing to the Messiah. Everything in, in the Old Testament from the very beginning, even from creation, was always pointing to the Messiah, that there would be one who would come who would be the Son of God, who would take away the sin of the world. Everything was pointing to that. In Jesus' life, he proved it. And then after he rose from the dead, he confirmed it. And then everything in the New Testament points back to the reality of it, testifies to it, and tells us how to live it out. The word of God does not change. Now, what we say is that his, or methods change. You ever heard that before? The message never changes, but the methods change. Anybody heard that? Is that new? Did I just make that up right now? Okay. Well, here's what's going on, is that there's something about that that's actually not true. His message never changes, and his method actually never changes. What does change are some of the tools that we use. Um, over the years, we've, we've changed how we do things, how we communicate things. Um, anybody grow up in Sunday school where they used the uh, flannel graph? Anybody old enough to have taught with the flannel graph? Mary Lee, do you still teach with the flannel graph? You would if you had it. You, I know you would. Mary Lee loves the flannel graph. Now, back in the day, that was high tech. I mean, that was a big deal. Like you, it was like visual and almost like 3D, and you could put all these people and characters, and they could see it, and you could teach, and you could... That was a big deal, was it not? A big deal to have flannel graph back in the day. 
And then kind of we advanced a little bit. And um, if you were here on uh, last Friday for the Good Friday service, Jim Augustine was talking about slide projectors. Does anybody know what a slide projector is? Okay. And you've seen them in old 1980s movies. But there's this um, circle of little slides with, that have pictures in them that you can put in a certain order and you can click through and it shines a light through it and you can project it onto your wall or onto a screen. And he was talking about how in his church when he was growing up that they had like, he said like 12 slide projectors that were projecting all these different images all over and, and going through, um, I don't know, the Easter story or whatever it was. And that was, that was high tech back then. Like, in fact, just thinking about how that would work is kind of like, man, that would have been a big deal to have all these slides and have all these people clicking through and just visually showing all. That, that's kind of a big deal. And then we advanced, and I don't, was this before or after slide projectors? Was the uh, overhead transparencies? You got to, we used them here for years and years. Anybody remember back in the day when we used the overhead transparencies and somebody is sitting in the, front, probably right up front, and they're just, you know, sliding out different, and one's getting upside down, and another one's got somebody's fingerprint on it, and, but man, you could see this, the words right on the screen, pretty big deal, and then we go on, and we have video projectors, now we're on Facebook, and now we have all this internet stuff, and those, those aren't methods, okay, those are tools, the method is people, it has always been. The word of God is the gospel and never changes. God's method is to transform lives through faith and then the empowering of the Holy Spirit and then send us, you and me, back out into the world to be his message, to confirm it, to say, not only do I believe it by faith, but I confirm it by my transformation. I'm different. I know Jesus. If you know Jesus, Listen, you're not out there telling stories about something that you heard. You are telling firsthand accounts of your experience of how Jesus himself personally has changed your life. That's his method. That's what he's doing in the, the 40 days of transferring his kingdom and his responsibility of the kingdom to his disciples. He's saying, you guys, you are so fortunate. You get to see Jesus firsthand. Put your finger in, in his hands. You can touch him. You can hear his voice. You can confirm. But there's a generation coming, and generation after generation after generation, thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and then billions of people that are going to have the same testimony without having to touch him. And he's sending you and me into our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our public life, whatever we do, as his method. You're his method. It's the only one he's got. Takes the word, power of the Holy Spirit, transform person, and then he says, this is how I'm going to change the world. All what we're doing this morning, we worship Jesus, we proclaim and, pro and, and profess and uh, celebrate that he is our Lord. This isn't it. This isn't his method. 
This is our celebration of what his method actually is. In some way, this is not church. I mean, we're gathered together. That's what kind of what church means. But church is you going out into the world. We're only going to get a tiny percentage in this room on any given Sunday of the people that need to hear the gospel, right? Even the people that bother to log in or listen or watch online or whatever, still just a tiny percentage. You take every single person who knows Jesus and you put them back out into the world, you just exploded exponentially the witness of the gospel. My only hope is that the truth of God's word proclaimed through this message and through our worship encourages you enough to have the hope to be able to share it freely wherever you go. Amen? And Father, we thank you that your methods don't change any more than your message. People change. Lord, we thank you for that, that you allow us to be transformed by your Holy Spirit, by the word of God sinking into our minds, into our hearts, the Holy Spirit taking that, causing a, some kind of a crazy, catalytic transformation, removing sin from our lives and our hearts and replacing it with hope and joy and peace and purpose. Thank you that we uh, don't just live for our own salvation. And I'm as thankful and, and happy about being saved as anybody, Lord, but I, I thank you that that's not why I'm here. I'm here to be a witness, sometimes really poorly, sometimes well, sometimes I get it right. But we're here to consistently, authentically communicate somehow we know you. We know you, we love you, we trust you. And anybody that we come into contact with is invited to do the same. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take that message, that method, and, uh, Lord, that you would build your kingdom. We thank you that you want to use us in that. You've chosen <laughs> to include us in that. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to just invite you this morning that whether you feel like you've done a spectacular job or you've been failing, um, today's a moment to just say, I am God's way of communicating his truth. And for some, maybe you, you're not there yet because you're not trusting Jesus. You need to put your faith in him. Uh, I, want, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Just say, Lord, I need you. Um, would you come and save me and change me? But if that's you this morning, just celebrate that you are his method. Amen? Let's stand and worship.